in the streets. Because uh, Dr. Fleming, Pastor David, uh, 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 and I coordinated our lessons this morning. All right, we should be careful to tread where God is working. God's coordinated our lessons this morning. Because we're going to pick up where he left off. We're going to talk about predestination. We're going to talk about the difference between being, what did he say at the end? Am I a Calvinist or am I an Arminian? Well, voila. Did God pick me or did I pick him? Also known as Jacob, actually it's Jacobus, Jacob Arminius and the changing Protestant church. That's what we're going to be about this morning. If you need a lesson, please raise your hand. I know that some people got in before I got the lessons in here this morning. And so raise your hand if you need one. Uh, Mark Craver's got him. He's walking down the aisle. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I remember when I was uh, graduating from high school and I started college, I had a friend named Dan Daniels. I always thought that was kind of a weird way to name your kid, but you know, at least he wasn't a boy named Sue. Um, Dan Daniels. And Dan came over to my house one day. And Dan was a student of the Word. He subsequently transferred to the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, Biola. And Dan came to my house one day and he said, I'm really troubled by something. And I said, what are you troubled by? He said, I'm troubled by the Calvinist Arminius controversy. I said, you are? He said, yes, I am. And I wanted your help. I said, well, flesh that controversy out a little bit for me. Because I didn't really understand what the controversy was. And he says, well, you know, Calvin was big on predestination. And Arminius was big on free choice, free will. And I said, oh, you mean that controversy? I didn't know that Arminius was the other fellow that kind of was the opposite end. And so uh, that was really my first opportunity to spend a lot of time trying to address the different scriptures and Dan and I had something else in common. We had both debated in high school. And so both of us approached arguments and, and issues in much the same way. And we just laid out in a very clear outline the pros and the cons of each. And I think over the next six months that we worked ourselves through this controversy, both of us flip-flopped multiple times. Now, this is not necessarily the kind of lesson that... People just want to walk in off the streets and enjoy. And if you've just walked in off the streets, please come back and give us another shot at your attention in this class. But this is an important part of church history. And what we're about here is to try and teach church history. So together, let's do that this morning. Now, if you look in the phone book under churches and denominations, you're going to find a ton. You can look and you can find the Baptist church. You can look and you can find the Catholic Church, the Christian Church, the Church of Christ, the Lutheran, the Methodist, the Presbyterian. You can find countless churches that I'm not listing. There are so many subgroups of churches. It did not used to be that way. What happened? When did all of these denominations really get cranking? And how did they crank? Well, if we go back, and back in the 1500s, 
I got a really old copy of the Yellow Pages from the 1500s. And I looked up, and it just had church. It didn't have churches. And that's really the mentality in the 1500s, which is where we had sort of left off when we hit King James in 1611. In the 1500s, you look up church, and you might find region, but you're not going to find different churches. You see, back in the 1500s, you sort of had two choices. You could either go to a church that was one that ascribed to Rome as its primary source of authority. Or you could go to a church that protested against Rome. If you went to the church that followed Rome, you came to be known historically, not at the time, but historically, you're a Roman Catholic. If you went to the church that protested against Rome, what are you? A protestant. A protestant. And those were the choices. But as we go into the 1600s, we're going to see that the protesters, the protestant church, starts to kind of divide and split and schism. And that's what we're going to be watching. It's not necessarily, by the way, a proud heritage. But that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to start with Jacobus Arminius. Jacobus Arminius, or Arminius, or Jacob, or whatever you want to call him, is born in about 1560. And when he's born, the, the Europe looks something like this map. And this red stuff, that's him, he's born up there in Holland, right outside Amsterdam. This red stuff on the lower left-hand side, that's the Roman church. That's where Roman Catholicism is still strong. It's still strong in Italy, in Spain, and Portugal, and France and in parts of what become Germany. But uh, if you go into Germany and Switzerland and that area, that's really where the Protestant churches have taken hold. Luther's brand of pro- protesting is, is in the northern part. You've got Zwingli and Calvin down in Switzerland. And these are where the protesters of the Catholic Church are. So you've got the Roman Church, you've got the protesting church, and then up in England, you've just got the church in England that claims to be neither Protestant or Roman, just claims to be Anglican or English. Okay? So those are the churches. Now, into this world is born Jacobus Arminius. He goes to school. He's a smart fella. His daddy dies when he's an infant. His mom dies when he's 15. But he's a smart fella, and he gets a scholarship to school. And he goes to the University of Leiden, which is up in Netherlands. It had just started in the fifth, maybe a few years, uh, 20, 30 years before he goes there. And he goes to the university and he studies theology. He gets out in his early 20s, but that's too young to become a preacher or a minister. So what he does is he goes to study from there. Now, I didn't tell you. You care to guess what type of university this is? They were all church schools at the time. There were not really secular schools. Everything was religious. That's a Protestant university. It's not a Catholic one. So he goes to a Protestant university, and then when he's finished, he goes for graduate schools, and he goes to, like, the the Holy Lands for the Protestants. He goes to Geneva, and he studies at Calvin's Academy in Geneva. Calvin's dead. 
Calvin dies in 1564. When Calvin dies, he leaves his academy in the care of a fella named Professor Beza. I'd like you to meet Professor Beza. I started to write Ted, but it just doesn't seem right for a fella that looks like that. And he really went by Theodore. We probably would have called him Ted, but maybe not. That's Professor Theodore Beza. Professor Beza is the fellow who actually wrote Calvin's biography. He was a student of Calvin's, a, a professor with Calvin. He was a great Greek scholar. He actually put together an early Greek New Testament. Beza was a, a big scholastic guru who takes over Calvin's academy. He was uh, has several pictures. Look at him. Doesn't he kind of look familiar to him, to you? Have you seen that before? <laughs> he needs the glasses. I mean, he could have fit into ZZ Top with that beard, couldn't he? So this is Professor Beza. There's no forgetting this man. <laughs> anyway, Beza, he takes John Calvin and pumps it up with steroids. Beza is not, I mean, for Calvin, Calvin writes on predestination, but if you remember our Calvin lecture, he doesn't make that big of a deal about it. It's not the most important thing in what he writes. Calvin's got lots of things to say about lots of issues, but all of a sudden Beza comes along and he, he makes predestination the cornerstone of what he's teaching. Let's make sure we're all on the same page. Predestination. Pre means before. Destination. It's the idea that God has destined you. It is your destiny. It's, it's God's chosen you before you were ever made to go to heaven. That's what predestination is as a concept. It's, 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 it's a question of election. Did God elect you? Are you part of the elect? Are you part of God's chosen people? If you are, according to Beza, which is high Calvinism, or Calvinism on steroids in Lanier speak, it means God either picked you out to go to heaven or to go to hell before you were ever made. And this is what Beza is teaching. God picked you out to go to heaven or to go to hell, and as a practical matter, you don't have a choice in it. You cannot resist what God has put before you. That is the teaching of Beza. Now, I've got some friends who are Calvinists. I've got Calvinist bones in my body. And just saying it almost creates a bitterness in my mouth. And I see some of you sort of squirming. Even my Calvinist friends don't really like me to say this. They say, well, that's, that's intense Calvinism. Well, yeah, that's right. This is what Beza was teaching. Let me put it to you this way. Beza looked at the, the key chapter for him was in the ninth book of Romans. And it's horrible to read a whole bunch of scripture in a class like this. But we have to. So bear with me. Not only that, this is Paul writing, but Rebecca's children, and he's talking about in the Old Testament, 
that there were there was Rebecca, and Rebecca had children. She had Rebecca's children had one and the same father, Isaac. Yet before those two twins were born, she has Jacob and Esau, two twins. Before they were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose in election, in choice, might stand. Not because of what they did, not by works, but by Him who calls, by God. God made the call before Jacob and Esau did anything at all, before they were even born, before they could do anything good, anything bad. God says to their mama, the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So what do we say? Paul writes, is God unjust? Heavens no. In the Greek, meganoito. Absolutely not. May it never be. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It doesn't depend on man's desire. It doesn't depend on man's effort. It depends, Paul writes, on God's mercy. Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I did it, God says, for my glory. That's why I raised you up, Pharaoh. So God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. Wow. That's pretty stiff, isn't it? This is the kind of stuff that makes you go back to Peter. See, Peter writes, long after Paul's written this long, a few years later... He writes, the Apostle Paul writes some things that are very hard to understand, which the wicked are able to twist to their destruction. Because this, I think Peter had this in mind. I think Peter was scratching his head thinking, man, I wonder how he meant this. Paul continues, one of you will say to me, hey, why does God blame us? If God's the one doing the, if he's having mercy on who he has mercy, having compassion on whom he has compassion, Jacob he loves, Esau he hates, if God is this way, then how can he blame us? Who could ever resist God's will? And Paul's response is, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Should something that's formed say to the one who formed it, Why'd you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath that He prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to us, whom he also called? Not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea. And talks about how he's going to call from Gentiles as well. Those who are not my people shall be called my people. Now, Beza looks at this, and Beza says from this we learn the following. That God has created to bring God glory. And God's greatest glory is shown 
in him selecting some for eternal life and selecting others for eternal damnation. And that's what he gets out of this passage. And you should not challenge God on it. You have no right to challenge God on it. If he wants to do it, he can do it. He's God. And then, Beza takes it a step further. And he gets in, I've put it in your notes. It's supralapsarianism. Superlapsarianism, excuse me. Supralapsarianism. I don't know why people give them words like this. By the way, it didn't get that fret word until about 1620. So Beza's dead by the time the word attaches, but he teaches it. I put in your footnote, it's not superlapsarianism, is not to be confused with supercalifragilisticexpialidocism, because that's from Mary Poppins, which would make it the Church of England, and that'd be Anglican as opposed to... Okay. Beza, Romans 9. Here's what he says based on this. He says, I got five things to tell you out of this passage. He says, this is the order of things. This is my supra-lapsarianism. This is me saying that not a chronological order as much as a concept order. That God thought or decreed things in this order. These are the decrees of God. First decree of God, God makes a decision. Right out of the box, God decrees who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. My PowerPoint slide used the word decide. That's not totally accurate for the way Beza would have said it. Decrees is probably more accurate, but it doesn't read as well. So with that warning, I'm going to keep the slide the way it is. God decides right out of the box who's going to heaven and hell. He just makes the decision. And after that decree, that's when God decides to create. In other words, for Biza, God makes a decision who's going to heaven and who's going to hell on an individual basis before he even makes the decision who he's going to create and that he's going to create. So God goes into creation already having decreed certain people to go to heaven, certain people to go to hell. Then he creates. And after he creates, he decrees to create a humanity that has the ability to sin and to fall. So before God decides to make man with this ability to sin and fall, before he decides to make it all, he makes a decision or a decree who's going to heaven or hell. Then God decides to create. Then God creates a humanity that can sin and fall. Then God sends a redemptive Christ. Finally, God applies the cross to the elect. Christ, according to Beza, didn't die for all the sins of the world, only for those who are in the elect who are chosen, who are predestined. This is the way Biza teaches. This becomes high Calvinism. It's double predestination. He not only chooses who's going to heaven, he chooses who's going to hell. And he does it before he makes anybody. Now, Arminius studies under Biza. And it's interesting because the guys who were scholarshipping Arminius 
they send a letter to Biza saying, "Uh, we'd like a progress report on our boy before we pay for the next semester. And we actually have the letter Biza wrote back. Biza says, Arminius is a bright kid. He's doing real well. We like Arminius. He's good. I don't think Biza knew what was going to happen to Arminius later in his life, or he probably would not have written that letter. See, Arminius graduates from there, and Arminius becomes the first Dutch-born pastor of the Dutch Protestant Church back in Holland. He gets hauled back to Amsterdam and becomes the preacher. Marries a pretty little girl from one of the town's power people and is really popular. The town loves him. He gives electric sermons. I don't think they could possibly be as electric as the one we just heard this morning, which was phenomenal. But he gives electric sermons and everybody likes him. Now, some more students come up from studying under Biza and they come up and they start talking about, hey, you know, you need to get up there and you need to preach on uh, these... uh, Five points of superlapsarianism. You need to preach this predestination stuff. You need, you know, you studied under Biza. You know what it is. Get up there and hammer it. Tell these people all them Catholics are going to hell because God chose it. Tell these people the Jews are going to hell. Tell them that we have been chosen by God and no one else. And Biza says, well, I'm going to teach... But I need to look at this. And so, I mean, uh, Biza, uh, Arminius says this. So Arminius does his own study of Romans chapter 9. Does his own study of Romans. And preaches. And Arminius says, I disagree. We do not have a God who on his own, in some what some might term harsh, vindictive manner, made a determination, I'm going to create some people to go to heaven and I will pick them and they have no choice in the matter and I'm going to take others and make them to go to hell and by all of that, it will bring me glory. Arminius says, that's not what happened. Now, the folks who came to him said, well, how do you explain Romans 9? Because when you read Romans 9, it sure reads that way. Or how about uh, uh, the passage that David Uh, uh, hits next week that he didn't have time to cover this morning. Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace. And Arminius responds. He says, well, here's the answer. You're misreading Scripture. Paul is talking about God having predestined and chosen the church, a class of people. Those who will put their faith in Christ have been predestined as a class. He's not talking about individual salvation. He's not saying God chose Louis Miori to go to heaven. 
He's saying God chose to take His church to heaven. And Lewis has chosen to be in the church. Do you see the difference? So he takes Romans 9 and he says, Romans 9, Paul is speaking about types almost allegorically here. And Jacob are people who have faith. Esau are people who don't have faith. They're the firstborn. They're the ones under law. They're old covenant. Jacob is the secondborn. Jacob is the one who's, who's a covenant of faith. Esau is the firstborn. He's a covenant of works. No faith. Trying to be justified by what you do. Trying to be right with God because you're good enough. Where Jacob stands for those who are trying to be right before God because Jesus has died for them and they accept that. So he says, you look at a passage like this now. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Not by him who works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He said he's talking about classes of people. God decreed from before those kids were born to be a symbol and an expression for us because he decreed before the world was made that the class of people who live by faith are the class he loves. The class of people who live by their own self-righteousness, who try to please God by what they do, who think they stand right before God because they're holy enough and they're good enough and they're self-righteous enough, that smugness God hates. And so God has chosen, and He would go back to the Ephesians passage, where in Ephesians it says, He chose us in Him. He'd say Paul means us, meaning all of us, corporately, the church. He chose He chose the body of Christ. He chose the faithful believers, not on an individual basis, but as a group. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. See, He's not only chosen us to be eternally His, He's not only predestined us as a church, but He's also chosen us to be holy and blameless. And that's where Arminius came down on it. Arminius said, in essence, man makes... This choice that God made for man of who he would take and who he wouldn't, this predestination is based on what God knew ahead of time. God knew what was going to happen. He knew some would be believers. He knew some would be self-righteous instead. And ahead of time, God knowing this, he called predestined those who would be believers. And he goes back to Romans 8.28 for this and 8.29. Those God foreknew, he predestined. See, the ones that God knew about ahead of time, those are the ones. Now, this was very tough for Arminius. Arminius got challenged uh, locally. Uh, they brought him down for heresy. Uh, the, the, the government passed him, gave him a pass and said that's okay. Actually appoint him to become a, philo- a, a theology professor at his university. Um, so he, he survives the challenges, but barely. It uh, has tough consequences on him. The whole community's in an uproar. Preachers are preaching on one side and against the others. Because while, you know, there's part of me that sits back and says, what is the big deal here? 
you know, why, why are they so hung up on this? Why aren't they just teaching the fundamentals? And yet, both sides would tell you it's, it's a big deal. The Calvinists would say, here's the issue. If you believe that you made a choice for God, if you believe that your choice is the determining factor, then you really are saved by works. And you have reason to boast because you made a choice that others will not make. And because of you and your choice, you're going to heaven. And that's abhorrent to the Calvinist mind. Now, here's the other side of the coin. The Arminians say, time out! If you Calvinists say that God made the choice and we have no input, we have no free will, and you say that God made us this way, knowing this was going on, then you have a concept of God that is atrocious. That God would purposefully create people simply to send them to hell? People who have no chance at all of accepting His grace? See, both sides see a, a big issue here. Well, Arminius dies just a few days after his 49th birthday of tuberculosis. Um, but when he dies, the issue doesn't die. Forty-six or so ministers get together and they draw up uh, uh, what's called the remonstrance. You don't have to remember the word. But they draw up uh, uh, these five points that they sign their name to and say, this is our doctrine. So this is the teaching of the Arminians. And I want you to look at this. I want you to say, huh, I wonder how many of these are in my heart, in my doctrine, in my church, or in the church of my background. Let's look at it. Number one, they say God predestined the group of Christians to be saved. He didn't predestine individuals. God made the choice ahead of time that I'm going to save Christians as a group, not I'm going to allow these people to be Christians. That's the core difference. That's the core understanding of those scriptures. And they looked and supported this with John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever. doesn't say just the elect. It says whoever it is that believes. But whoever rejects will not see life. God's wrath remains on him. That's the last verse in John 3. Their second point. The atonement, Jesus Christ died for the sins of all the world. He did not die merely for the people who would be Christians. When he hung on the cross, this, the, the Biza high Calvinism taught when Jesus is on the cross, the only sins he took on are the sins of those who would be saved. He did not take on the sins of any others. And that is uh, not the Arminian position. The Arminian position was supported. Um, whoops. My computer just hit slow mode. The Arminian position was supported by 1 John 2.2. 2, 
which says, And He, Jesus, is the propitiation or the, the, the sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Third point. Man cannot exercise saving faith by himself. Arminius and his people did not say that man, on his own, has an ability to embrace God and as such can boast about it. Here's what they said. He said, nobody embraces God except God's Spirit calls them. So God gets all the glory and God does the work. But God's Spirit calls everybody. So anybody who answers the call can't brag and say, look, I'm so holy, I, I answered God's call. It's God's Spirit. It's not what you did. This, I mean, some of this may seem like we're... Some of you are sitting there thinking, I don't even give a rip about this. Okay, you don't have to. It's really not required for salvation. It's just required for church history literacy. (laughs) Hang with me. I'll tell you what's important in a minute. Man can't exercise saving faith on his own. Jesus said in John 15, 5, that apart from me you can do nothing. So anybody who answers God's call has done it because God's given them the ability. But God offers that ability to everyone. An act of God is necessary for salvation. God has to give man the ability to receive grace, but God doesn't force it on anybody. Anybody can say, no, I don't want it. God has to have, God, God has to act. It's the Holy Spirit that draws you to Jesus. When you hear that nagging inside you that says, there may be something to all of this. That's God. But the Arminians would say, everyone can say no to that. Where the Calvinists disagree. The grace in the Calvinist mind is irresistible. If God's picked you out, you're going, baby. That's all there is to it. So the remonstrance said this, and, and they went to Acts 7 as their example, where Stephen says to him, you've always resisted the Holy Spirit. Got Stephen Stone, by the way. But, uh, uh, you know, people have an ability to resist the Holy Spirit, they said. And then their fifth They said, now, how about this idea that once you're saved, you're always saved? Can you fall from grace? They said, we're not sure. There are certainly scriptures that seem to indicate you cannot. But then there are these pestering scriptures, especially in Hebrews, that seem to indicate you can. So we're not going to take a definite position on that one. That's what the remonstrants do. Well... This causes a great ruckus. It causes uh, civil war, if you will, within the cities and the towns and municipalities. And so the response of the ruling prince is to call a synod. The synod is a gathering of the holy people. It happens from November of 1918, uh, 1518 through January of 1618 through January of 1619. Three months. And they arrest most of the Arminians beforehand so they cannot attend. A few of them get to come, but not many. They bring in people from a number of different countries for this. It's kind of a gathering of the who's who, of the Protestants. 
And at this synod, they adopt the tulip. And this is where your five Calvinist points come. Total depravity. Man is totally depraved, can't even seek God, can't do good. Unconditional election. God chooses, He elects who's going to heaven, not based on anything man has done. It's unconditional. Limited atonement. Jesus died only for the sins of the elect. Irresistible grace. God finds you. The hound of heaven is on your trail. There's nothing you can do about it. You are caught and you cannot say no to God. And perseverance of the saints. Once you are saved, you will always be saved. That is the assurance within God. Now, I've actually left myself seven minutes for points for home, which was my goal. I rarely do that. But it's very important to me I do it this morning because if you haven't paid attention to anything I've said so far, I'd like you to pay attention to this. When I prepare these lessons, I often think... Um... Okay, what is God pleased with and what does he want me to do differently? Part of that for me is always the so what question. And I got to tell you, I hit classes like this and, and this is an issue that I've debated. I've been on both sides of this issue. If I've been able to express to you adequately either of the sides... It's because I've held either of the sides at various points in my life. And I sit there and I wonder, okay, you know, what God really wants right now is God wants us to embrace Him, to hear the message of His Spirit, to grow in love, to grow in faithfulness, to grow in, in um, kindness and gentleness, in, in self-control. He wants our families to be blessed by us. He doesn't want us to be a thorn in the family. He wants us to be the, the, the blessing. There's not a person in here who's in relationship with other people where God doesn't want you to be a blessing to others in that relationship. You know, we look at homes, we look at work units, and, and there's a tendency to say, well, that's the spiritual person in the home. That's the one who, who's going to be pulling us together to spiritual things. But I got news for you. God wants every one of us to be that way. He wants everyone. He wants you, when you've never been spiritual in your home before, to become the spiritual lightning rod for the rest of your family. God wants you to, to be a source of blessing. And I'm supposed to stand up here and talk about who he picks and who he doesn't pick and supra-lapsarianism and infra-lapsarianism. And yet, in the process of all of this, there is a point that, that is a valid point. And the, the point that's valid is that God truly does reach out to us. And none of us take credit for being Christians. Because the glory is God's, it's not our own. And somewhere in here, here's the difference between Calvin and Beza. Calvin, like Luther, like Augustine, who believed this as well. Calvin 
And Luther and Augustine were willing to let there be some element of mystery about God. They weren't so intent that a brain the size of your fist is supposed to understand the God of the universe. Let there be some element of mystery. Take some humility with you when you try to understand God. Don't lose the mystery. We can know things truly about God. I'm not saying our brains are so feeble and God is so high that we can't know anything truly about Him. We can. God teaches us and reveals to us through His Word truths about Him. But there's a difference between understanding God truly and understanding God fully. Leave some room for some mystery. Something for you to chew on. An area for you to grow. Don't let the concrete harden around your feet on an issue like this. There's an expression that none of us could chase down where it came from. We thought maybe Spurgeon, we thought maybe some other things. I looked and searched, couldn't find it. But the expression is one that, that, that says, you know, maybe you understand it a little this way. You walk into the gates of heaven and as you're approaching the gates of heaven... There's a big sign up that says, whosoever will may come. You can put your name there. Mark Lanier may come. And that is on the gates because you're invited. You are, you can come in. Anybody that wants to be a child of God can be a child of God. All you gotta do is say, yes, Lord. I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. You bring your sins to Jesus. You let Him wash you. Clean. But once you go through those gates and you turn around and look back, you see it says, Come on. It'll come in a minute. You look back and it says, Chosen from the foundation of the world. When you're walking in, it says, whoever will may come. When you walk back, it says, chosen from the foundation of the world. The way I put it is this way. You make a choice. You decide. Do I want to follow God or not? That's your decision. Do I want to accept Jesus' righteousness or live on my own? You make that choice. Okay? But you're going to find when this world is over that God had the names written in the Lamb's book of life already. Now, how he does that through foreknowledge, through whatever, I'm not really going to tell you that I've got it all figured out. But I am going to tell you that my God is in control. And I am going to tell you that, that, that there's, there's something there. Now, salvation itself, though, please understand, it's not rocket science. Salvation couldn't be any simpler. There's not a person in this room that's not able to be a child of God. You don't know anybody that's not able to be a child of God. It's not something you do. It's not something you earn. It's not something you merit. It's not something you find. He finds you. He reaches down all the way. By grace, you're saved through faith. It's not by works. Nobody's going to be boasting about it. If Arminius is right... He's right in saying that God has to reach down for everyone. And so no one ever has room to boast. Those who say yes, 
have no room to boast. They merely acknowledged and accepted what had already been done for them, as opposed to those who rejected. Now, this is our blessed assurance. Peter was asked in Pentecost. Peter has just delivered a, a Pentecostal sermon and told everybody that they'd killed God in human form. But God had resurrected. Now, if you don't understand the whole Bible salvation scheme and you find out you just killed God when he came as a human to, to do something for you, your general reaction, if you don't understand the salvation scheme, might be, okay, we're in a bit of trouble. We have just offended the Almighty and killed him, killed his son. And the response of the people was exactly that. Ooh, what do we do now? And it was responding to that question that Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And it doesn't have a tense there. It's not your past sins. It's the forgiveness of your sins. When you come to God, God accepts you. I grew up in a church where we didn't understand the doctrine of once saved, always saved. I'm still not sure I fully understand that doctrine. But I can tell you this. I always thought it was humorous that even though I lived in a church where we didn't ascribe to the doctrine, we prayed the doctrine on a regular basis. Because we sang a song, O sacred head now wounded, with grief and scorn weighed down. Thorns, thine only crown. O make me thine forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, never let me outlive my faith for thee. Is God going to honor that prayer? I will tell you this. The wonders of his love and the wonders of his glory is that nothing's going to separate us from him. We're saved by our faith and he's going to keep us in his hands. He's not going to let... He will leave the 99 and go for the one. But he'll give his life before he'll let Satan get to his children. And that's the blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. That's the foretaste of glory divine. We are heirs of salvation. We're purchased by his blood. And so we have that. Um, Charles Stanley has a great book on that that Dale recommends. It's called Eternal Security. Meanwhile, if you really want to go to sleep easy tonight, both of these are wonderful. Why I am not an Arminian and why I am not a Calvinist. So, you know, these two, I, I, I have trouble keeping them apart. They just want to fight, but they are good books. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for uh, the, the blessing of being your children and the opportunity to be your children. And we earnestly pray that anybody who has questions about this might have a chance to come down and visit with some of us after class, that your Holy Spirit will be at work here. We love you. We adore you. We're honored to be your children. You truly are. Your ways are not our ways. Your, your, your mind is beyond our mind. But that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us some, we, we, we just are, are humbled to be in your presence. In Jesus we pray, amen.